So, um, so, so I know you know this, as is evidenced by our last few minutes, but you are inherently a wired uh, for relationships, for friendship. You're wired uh, at your core and your DNA to be in close proximity with other people. Uh, the very first thing in the scripture that's not good in the beginning of Genesis is it's not good for man to be what? Anyone know? Alone, right? So the very first thing that's not good is that we're disconnected from people. We need close proximity with others. But the interesting thing is, is that there's a big difference in how we, uh, how we assimilate that proximity. In other words, uh, there's many differences in each of us that either allow people to come in closer or that allow us to push folks away. Uh, I think it's most seen in just genders. Uh, let's talk about the, the male species first. Um, being one of them, I can speak from experience. Um, dudes, we don't, we don't necessarily need to talk to other guys to be friends with them. I don't know if you've noticed this, um, but like, we're cool just being in the same room with other dudes, and we're, we're just boys. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, like well, you, don't, you don't have to conversate. You can get, you know, it's the head nod. That does it. You know what I'm saying? What up, dude? It's cool, you know? Right on. We're best friends, right? Like, and, you know, you're wearing the best friend bracelet and everything. Now, um, so, so guys, guys, we're just our own breed, and we don't, we don't need all of those things. Now, uh, the female species, on the other hand, um, now, this is a strange and peculiar species. Um, these... Uh, these folks, um, like talking, it, like it's not just that they have to, like this is like the whole premise, it seems, of their relationship. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like if they're not talking, like the whole verse, like, you know, be slow to speak and quick to listen. Like, I'm not sure many females have read that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just very, very uh, talking it out. Everything's processing. Talk this, talk that. Uh, my wife now texts more than I text, which is a miracle of God. Uh, let me tell you that. Um, the species of genders are just interesting, but, but each of you, in your own way, like you, you have some of those things as well. Uh, for some of you, it's trust, right? Like if you can't trust someone, you'll, you'll push them completely out. Uh, for others of you, it's communication. Like if you can communicate with others, or if you feel like they're serving you or loving you well, like you want relationship with those folks. Now, it's one thing to talk about uh, our relationships man to man, and I mean that generally, you know. Um, it's a whole other thing to talk about the proximity of God and man. And what's been interesting for me, incredible in fact, is that the book of Hebrews, that's what we're studying now if you're just joining us, the book of Hebrews, the writer, has gone to great lengths to build this deep doctrine, deep truth, deep understanding, so that he can make some simple statements that all surround around the proximity of God and man. So in instantly for you, I hope, if there's going to be a night where we're wrestling with God's relationship specifically with man and its closeness and its proximity, let me tell you something that has great interest to you and I. And so no matter where you came from tonight or what background or what understanding, I firmly believe that this passage tonight comes in tremendous power. So uh, what we need to do first, though, is catch you up from last week, okay? Last week we studied this man named Melchizedek. Now, if tonight's your first night here, now you're going to call me the cussing pastor. Melchizedek is not a cuss word. Uh, it is a word in the scripture. And um, it's a strange name, I know. But last week we studied this man in tremendous deep uh, theological doctrinal implications. I'm going to sum up last week in five things. So whether you were here or not, I think you'll understand. The first thing we know about Melchizedek is this. He only has eight mentions in the entire Bible. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, 4, and 6 in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is obsessed with Melchizedek. Tonight we'll find out why. 
Okay, the next thing is this. He's both a king and a priest, which is interesting because there's no other priest in the whole Old Testament that holds the office of both king and priest. He's the only one. Third thing is this. His name means king of righteousness, which is largely significant because righteousness and its understanding, really, we don't get a good grasp of until uh, the person of Christ comes. So as we learned last week, this guy holds a very powerful office. The fourth thing is this. Uh, Abraham tithes to him. Now, this is huge because Abraham, as you learned last week, is just coming off a major war victory. He's a stud. He's like in the prime of his potential arrogance as a man. And in this moment, he recognizes the power, the awesomeness of Melchizedek, and then gives a tenth of everything that he has, which, by the way, is much, over to Melchizedek. Lastly, uh, Melchizedek isn't Jesus or the pre-incarnate Jesus, which many people believed uh, to be. He is simply a picture, an image of. Okay, So last week we learned all of this stuff. And, and maybe it was tough for you last week to understand like why Melchizedek is even, even important. No matter if you were here last week or not, let me tell you this. Tonight you will see why all of this is so drastically important to the book of Hebrews. So open your Bibles or turn in your phones to uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 through 19. I feel like I have to say that now. Like everywhere I go, um, everyone's face is illuminated when I preach anywhere. It's because, you know, their LED screen is lighting up their face. It's, I thought one time it was just the Word like providing this illumination, and then I realized it was the power of the iPhone. Um, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 through 19. I want to read the text in its entirety. It will seem very wordy. But let me guarantee you, once we start breaking this down, it's going to, you're going to feel the flow and the rhythm of it. Let's start in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Question mark. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. Verse 14, 4, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. I know many of you would say at this point, como se dice, but listen, like it's this, as this unravels and unfolds, I'm telling you what, it will make tremendous sense. So as we do, if you're here for the first time, we teach just word for word, verse by verse, so you can learn in your own context how to better study the Bible. Because I know many of you get discouraged when you open the Word and you don't understand things. It's because you don't take enough time just to sit in it and really meditate on it and study it. So let's start here in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Let's pause and explain. This is the 13th time in the book of Hebrews we see the concept of priest mentioned. There's many more to come. He is infatuated, we could say, with the term priest. A priest, of course, is someone who represents man to God. 
and his readers, it becomes very clear that he's trying to help them understand how the priestly order affects their proximity to God. Somehow, in some way, if they can better grasp the depth of the priestly order, then the writer's uh, contention is then they'll better understand their proximity to God. You'll get more here in a second. Let's first describe the word before priesthood, which is what? Which is what? Levitical. Okay? Interesting word, strange word. Here's what it means. I'll put up my genealogy here. I taught this uh, several months ago now. The priests in the Old Testament all had to come from one genealogy, one line, the Levites. Now, Levi was one of the twelve sons of Jacob, whose name later changes to Israel. These twelve tribes make up the whole nation of Israel. One of those tribes, the Levites, is the tribe that every priest has to come from. So much so that you had to prove four generations back an unbroken line to that of Levi. Aaron's the first priest. And all of this line is largely significant. So somehow the writer's saying there is this connection. You can take that down now. This connection between the Levitical genealogy and the priesthood and our relationship and proximity to God. So let's see here again what he says and all this will start to make sense. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, uh, parentheses here, for under it people received the what? The what? The law. Now, what's the law? Uh, well, uh, first, it, it could mean like the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments, you know, Exodus 20. Moses comes down. You've seen the movie. He has an amazing voice. Uh, and, and Moses comes down, not Charlton Heston, Moses comes down in Exodus 20 and, and reveals the law from God to the people, these Ten Commandments that they're to live by. Now, what happens is, is it becomes very, very clear in this moment that there's some Old Testament system that's beginning. So the connection between the law and the priests is this. The law completely revealed that man in and of themselves could not obey God. That's what the law proved. God gives the Ten Commandments, and the whole thing that it does is it shows that man cannot follow God. Man cannot perfectly, even close to, obey God. So what happened? So God then sends the priests beginning with Aaron, to make representation of the people to God. And he does it so there can be some semblance of proximity between God and man. That's the Old Testament system of things. Are you with me? So look what he says here in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise in the order of Melchizedek? What is he saying? This Old Testament system, the law, priests give sacrifice, it will not cut it. It doesn't work. It served a purpose, but what the writer is saying to these Jewish readers, which that becomes clear at this moment, Levitical priesthood means nothing to a Gentile. You're like, who's a Gentile? Not a Jew, okay? A Gentile, listen, they come from crazy perspectives of deities, very pluralistic forms of God. Like, you say Levitical priesthood to a Gentile, I mean... They think you're speaking a completely different language. So it really reveals to us, this is Jews. But he's saying, look, this old system, it, it doesn't, it won't work. It's not going to cut it. The new is better, is what he's saying. Uh, let me help you uh, understand it this way. So you and your friends are organizing some get-together of some nature. 
And, uh, and so uh, your friends decide that they're going to communicate about this shindig of some nature uh, through the amazing resource of the email, okay? Now, um, you decide that you're going to fight the man, okay? So what you do is, is you get this email, and it comes through to you, and it's very interesting, and depending on girl or boy, you know, very flowery or very uh, football-ish or whatever. Um, and, and you read this email, and again, you decide you're going to fight the man. So what you do is you don't reply all to the email, which would have certainly been convenient. You decide you're going to bring back the post-it note. And so what, what you do is you want to respond to all of these characters in this email, but you really desire in the deepest depths of your heart to make it very personal. So uh, you take your time, get out your calli- uh, calligraphy pen, and you pen uh, six or seven notes on these post-it things to your friends. And then you begin the process of transporting these post-it notes to all of your friends. Well, once you get back, feeling a true sense of accomplishment, right, like you've journeyed, this has taken now all of three days for you to do, um, you realize that you forgot something, right? And so, like, the process has to start all over. And so there you are again, taking the post-it notes. This would be idiotic. Like, if any of you really thought that this would be a good idea in this kind of forum, like, remember that you have a a well-working tower uh, or laptop that sits in front of you. I know most of you now can email from your phones. Like, this is good. None of us would revert back to some way of communication that's completely insufficient with our time, ineffective with our time. It, it, would, it would make no sense. Like none of you would be like, yeah, I'm, like that, I'm, I'm rocking that right now. Like that's how I talk with most people. They text me, I post them back. You know what I'm saying? No, you don't, you don't do that. Listen, that's exactly what he's saying here to his readers. The new is better. The old needs to completely go away. Because this new understanding, if there would have been a way for you to be made complete, as verse 11 said, through the old system, then there wouldn't be another need for a priest. But there is a need. So that's how he's starting out his argument. And this just keeps building. Verse 12, I love this. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now some of you, this verse, just, it already just irks you because the word change is in there twice. All right? Uh, some of you, some of you need change, right? Some of you thrive on change. Some of you like change, it makes you, it defines you. Like if you're not changing something, every, some of you just change clothes seven times to fill that need a day, right? But, but others of you, <laughs> others of you, change makes you queasy. You know what I'm saying? Like the literal idea of change, you're very, I don't like any, I want the, the very practical, predictable pattern in my life. How many of you guys would just say, oh, that's me, I'm, I don't like change at all. How many of you would say that, right? Okay, a few of you, there you go. You're going to change tonight, I promise. Anyway, and um, the amazing thing about this passage is, listen, a Jew, do you understand that there is a completely different perspective that they have than you have? Let me show you. Uh, you have this amazing resource, uh, it's called the Scripture. And you have this, something that was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you have the opportunity to look back on this book as a total picture, a total understanding of God's plan of redemption. You see what I'm saying? You have it. These readers, they don't have this. Their forefathers and all of their tradition has been based on this old system. A priest makes way for me to God. That gives me proximity. I have to make sacrifice. So could you at least say, 
that this understanding of changing for them is a wee bit difficult. You're telling me now that all this old stuff is gone and this new thing is what's driving me? That's exactly what he says in verse 12. If there's a change in the law, there's a change in the priesthood. Everything's changing because they go together. His whole point is this. You have to be ready to release the old. And if you're not, then you will miss the very precious nature that this whole story is about God's love and redemption. Here's what he says in verse 13, the furthest point. I love this. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Sometimes when I read the Bible, there's like this single word that just jumps out at me that makes me really happy. And in this verse, there's one of those. I hope that happens to you every once in a while. Like as you're reading, hopefully you do that, or you're flipping. Like as you're reading, there's this, this single word that just comes out and grabs your heart and stirs you. Uh, for me here, it's in the very beginnings of verse 13. For the, what's the word? For the one. I am so and was and still will be deeply impacted by the simple word One. In an area of the world and an understanding of complete paganism and even Jews are being infiltrated by Gnosticism. There is so much out there that is so confusing for us. So many voices, so much coming at us. I find it truly encouraging that the story of the Bible is about one God and one story of redemption and one love and one body. There is no confusion. We don't have to sift through all of these deities. Do you understand that there's some religions that literally have hundreds of gods. It would be so confusing every day to know who to pray to and who is talking to me and what kind of sacrifice do I need to give this god and this godette or whatever. Like, what does that look like, right? It would get so confusing. Not for you, not for me. One god. There's only one. And when the writer here escalates that, I find true encouragement in knowing that I have the opportunity to not be confused but to be completely focused. And I know many of you struggle with that being focused on one simple thought that this book and this story and this reality is God's love and story of redemption as one God, one Father, one Son, one Spirit. And so he says this about the tribal system. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord, in verse 14, was descended from what? From Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Here's his point. Jesus is clearly not from the Levitical tribe. He's not from the Levitical line. He doesn't stem from Aaron. Jesus is going to be a completely different kind of priest. Moses didn't talk about the tribe of Judah. In fact, this is only one of two times in Scripture, the other Revelation 5, 5, where we even see the concept of the tribe of Judah and Jesus' connection. Matthew and Luke's genealogy firm up this with showing that David and Jesus are in the same line. David coming from the tribe of Judah. All of this point is this. Melchizedek serves a scriptural purpose. And what is that? Jesus doesn't come from the Levites. He comes from something else. That's his purpose. Melchizedek is in the scripture. We mentioned him last week, studied him, took everything into the doctrine so that we could understand Jesus is a different kind of priest. He's not like these human priests. He doesn't have to make sacrifice 
on, on, on his own behalf. He sacrifices on behalf of others. He's a completely different priest from a completely different tribe. And this is the point in the story. Listen, like you know in movies where like everything is just escalating to this one central point and your heart starts beating and the music starts riding and they say, hold me, Jack, you know, and this is amazing Titanic moment, right? Now, this is that point. Look at this in verse 15. This becomes, verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Anytime we've seen the, uh, the, the name Melchizedek, it's always said in the what? In the order of Melchizedek. But now this whole thing changes. Now we see that this new priest is going to be in the likeness of Melchizedek. There's a massive transition. Uh, let me talk about it for a second. To be a, a Levitical priest, I've already mentioned it, four generations back, you had to prove uh, unbroken line. Uh, there was 146 scriptural mentions that if you had any physical blemish, one of these 146, you couldn't be a priest. So there's, uh, that, that list gets pretty daunting, okay? Had to be from Aaron's line four generations back. If you had any one of 146 uh, skin or bodily blemishes, no dice. The third thing is this, in Leviticus chapter 9, talks about all of the physical preparations and cleansings you had to go through as a priest. In other words, the Levitical line was completely physical. It had to do with genealogy, had to do with physical presence and blemishes. It was all based on the physical. And there were bad and ungodly priests at times, which if you look through the scripture, God certainly dealt with them appropriately, Right? But this other line, in the likeness of Melchizedek, has nothing to do with physicality and everything to do with character. Melchizedek was the king of peace and righteousness, not the pre-incarnate Christ, but a picture of what Christ would be. And so Jesus, who is coming from this line, comes in the likeness of Melchizedek. And this is unbelievable. If he has spent all of this time building into his readers this doctrine of priests, you have to understand priests, you have to understand Melchizedek, now we see why. If they don't understand the priestly system, if they don't understand the depth of Melchizedek, and that's why he's so obsessed, obsessed with Melchizedek, because if, you, if you're interested in the priestly order, then you have to be uh, interested in Melchizedek. His whole thing is this, when you understand that, then you see proximity of God and man, so much so that the power of verse 16 is seen in this. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. This is his moment with all passion and vigor, where the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus has to be your priest. Like no more of these other guys. These other guys aren't cutting it. They're human, they're failed, they're flawed. They're temporal. Jesus has to be your priest. He has literally spent chapters of teaching on priests and now an extremely depth of teaching on Melchizedek just so he could say, Jesus, this new priest, he's the only priest. He's your way, he's your truth, he's your life. Are you with me? Now he says all of this to reiterate here in verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. I have much to say on this. Third time it's mentioned uh, exactly in Hebrews, fifth time implicitly. There's something I hate about myself. You're like, oh, I'm sure I know what it is because I hate that about you too. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I hate how temporary things seem to drive me. And I've tried to discover it in my life, and I would, I would imagine that some of you struggle with it too. It's just so easy. Because everything in this is so temporal. My children will die, my wife will die. All of it and all of this will be gone one day. But it's right in front of my face. I can see it, I can touch it, it's very tangible. And so it's so easy at times to live for something that is right here because I, I can, we can like talk and have conversations but the whole premise of what the writer is saying is is this priest lasts forever let me show you why that's so powerful to a Jew so you're a Jew and you have a priest okay a high priest and then there's other priests on the synagogue level I'm just seeing how many times I can say priest tonight now listen uh, you, you have a priest who dies okay so a priest dies, and, and then they fill it with another priest based on these physical conditions. So you started to get to know this priest and, and on the synagogue level maybe, and he was your representation to God, and then he's just gone. So you've got to rebuild the relationship. Can you see how tiring it would be to, A, have to always go through another man to get to God? You understand how tiring that would be? Desiring and longing in your heart to have intimate connection with God and all the while having to do it through someone else. Some of you know how tiring it is because you're still trying to do it, right? But could you just imagine that for a second? And then could you imagine finding intimate connection, finally feeling like, all right, this guy, he really knows me. And then he dies. He's done. His office is over. His whole point is the office of Jesus is eternal. He's your priest forever. He's not going anywhere. He died and he rose again and his office will stand the test of time. He's your priest forever. He's eternal. So rest in that. And I just feel like like in his heart, the passion of his heart is just coming out here. I feel like right now he's like bleeding for his readers. I know the old is comfortable, but the new is so much better. Jesus is a priest forever and everything that comes with Christ is so powerful. He like, in a moment of passion, I believe, says verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That's what he calls the law, okay? So it's like he's getting all fired up, inspired by God, clearly, right? And then he calls the law, so he says, set it aside, it's useless and weak. Now it'd be like um, the same image that we were talking about in the whole like post-it note computer thing. It, like it's gone. It's, it's over. It served a purpose, like telegrams and everything. They served a purpose at one point in time, but now they're obsolete because there's something better. So he's not saying the law was completely useless. He, he's just saying it served its purpose and now it's done. Now, listen. I've been wrecked over this passage because of how much time the writer has taken to get to this point right here in verse 19. He's been building 
and building and building and building. And it's like this. If they can understand deep truths, then maybe they'll get a simple statement. And so he says this in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You can have proximity to God that is so intimately connected and He's been building all of this priestly structure to finally say to His readers, you can draw near to God. You can have connection with God. You never had it before, but now you can have it. And you sit in your seat and have this amazing opportunity through the grace of Christ to do that same thing, to draw near to God. My fear is that many of you fear being near to Him. The very thing that defines our faith, God and man can be in proximity because of Jesus, is one of, I believe, some of your greatest fears. And I want to help show you why. The understanding of drawing near to God I think there's at least eight things that reveal what that drawing looks like. And so if I could, I want to walk through these with you. And what you're going to find is, though some of you would communicate that you're drawing near to God, I think what you're about to see is, maybe not so much. The first thing is this. When you're drawing near to God because of Christ, you are constantly seeing new portrayals of His character. And it is so encouraging and overwhelming because just daily you are seeing new truths about the depth of who God is. And it's just coming out of you. I mean, today you thought you understood His love and then boom, tomorrow He opens the floodgates. Shows you deeper truths of His love. Shows you how much wider it is than you could even conceptualize. When you're drawing near to Him, His character is just coming. You just can't stop seeing it. That's one of your greatest indications. Proximity to God is getting closer and His character is getting so clear. Second thing is this, you hear Him. You're like, what, on some God walkie-talkie, right? Like, Well, the Scripture. Like one of the biggest things that I always hear from. So some of my friends say they heard God's voice and I never, read the Bible. It's an entire book filled with God's voice. And when you're drawing near to God, His voice is so discernible from every other voice. You know His voice apart from all of the other chaos and rigor and more of the culture. It's so clear. You hear Him. And so I'm just saying right now, if you read a scripture and you feel like there's nothing that's being produced from it, it already says it's living and active, it's probable that you're just not drawing near to Him. Third thing is this. And I love this one. You see Him working. It bothers me deeply when I hear Christians talk about things like circumstance. Have you ever heard a Christian say, I can't believe that that happened? Have you ever heard a Christian say that? Have you ever said that? Like 40 times yesterday, right? I can't believe this happened. It might be one of your deepest doctrine statements you ever make. You can't believe this happened? Really? Is that really the truth? Because what I see constantly in every situation, every situation, pain and joy, that God is at work, He's accomplishing His will by His power for His glory alone. And in everything, God is allowing everything under His sovereignty. And as you draw near to Him, cultural relevance 
and circumstance goes by the wayside and you just constantly are communicating. I watched God do this. I saw God do that. God was at work again here and not just in joy, but in pain. Start suffering, start going through a hard season and you see God continually being faithful despite your faithlessness. He's working. For those of you that haven't and aren't seeing it, I'm telling you, it's very probable that you're fearful of drawing near to him. Fourth thing is this. I was uh, speaking to a group of people uh, on Friday, and I said one of the greatest blessings of the church is that uh, it's very corporate. And what I mean by that is not like some business sense, but like we together get to worship God. But let me tell you this. If you took all of the public worship opportunities away from your life, what would be left? Our God is so personal, and that's the whole concept here. He's so the church and the body, but at the same time, intimately knows you, intimately created you. And when you draw near to Him, you sense on a very intimate level His love and His grace. It is overwhelming. Not for others, but for you. You're not living in your mama's faith anymore. It becomes your faith, your sense of love, your grace, and it's so overwhelming and good. Um, The scripture that's really been pounding on my heart recently is that the joy of the Lord is, is my strength. And as I start to work through this and ponder this and see these things, I begin to remember again why there's this association with joy in Jesus. Then why do I sense such a dull drum at times portrayal of Christianity in our culture and even at times within our own body? This is joyful. Like what other hope do you need? You draw near to God and you intimately sense His love and His grace. Unbelievable stuff. Number five, as you draw near to Him, your doubts, they're not even in the same galaxy. Because His character is so overwhelming, His voice is so clear, His working is so developing, that literally like these petty, youthful doubts back here, you're like, no, like I've seen and heard God working today in this moment. And that's where doubt arises, right? You stop reading your scripture, you start disconnecting from God, and then what happens? The doubts creep in because you're not awing his character like you were back there. It's again when his character grips you and changes you and morphs you that you're like, doubt what? I can't doubt and not God because he's too good. Their doubts fade away. Number six. I phrase it like this, that it puts your flesh into perspective because when you draw near to God, you continually realize that literally nothing else matters. And I've talked about it many times here before. I'll say it one more time because I'm completely obsessed. I love my wife and I love my kids. I mean, if I could talk about them all day long, I would. My children make me smile. My wife is the best wife in the world, incredibly hot. I'm free to say that. It's the late service, right? Like, I, I have... <laughs> I have an amazing, amazing family, amazing situation. My kids love me. I love them. They love me most times. Um, but, but the amazing thing is this. Like it's, when I draw near to God, it all just gets insignificant. Now, I say it puts my flesh in perspective because the Scripture also says that I'm a son of a son and an heir. I'm still used by God as His servant. See what I'm saying? But it's, it's a spirit inside the flesh. So the flesh isn't just regarded It's used by God. But as I draw near to Him, like nothing else matters. 
I look at all this and I say, man, this is great. It's nice to be together as a church. Certainly love all these folks. And every single one of us, one day, our flesh will die. But there's a God who's a priest forever. You see what I'm saying? As you draw near to him, it puts everything in perspective. Number seven. This one is the hardest, and this is why you fear. The Bible talks about this tension between light and darkness. The nearer that you draw to God, the more clearly your sin is revealed. Here's where some of you find yourself. Drawing near, seeking Him, away. And He through His Scripture and the promptings of the Spirit start to reveal some deep-rooted sin in your life. And instead of confront it and repent, guess what? I think I'll just, it felt good, it felt better back here. This is more comfortable, this feels a little bit nicer. But the reason why when you draw near to Him, that uh, you become well aware of your sin is because light and darkness cannot coexist. And when you get to the center of light in general in the person of Christ, your darkness just becomes extremely clear. And so the natural outcome of number seven is number eight. Look at this. You just straight change. When you draw near to God, your existence changes. The Bible calls it a new creation, but that new creation, I believe, is daily seeing changes in how God is morphing us. This is what drawing near to God does. And I'm giving this to you as somewhat of a gauge. I don't want you to say, oh, I get an A on number one and an F on number two, so I must not be drawing near to Him. I'm just saying you know, don't you? Some of you tonight find yourself completely complacent. I'm telling you, that's not drawing near to God. Some of you find yourself running away from Him. That's not drawing near to God. Some of you tonight are so fearful to draw near to Him. It's like this. As a kid, or even now for some of you teenagers still living at home, have you ever just really uh, made your parents angry ever? Has that ever happened? Um, For me in my house... uh, a sinner, I decided one time when I was 12 that I was going to sneak out, and I was the dead of winter, and I had a really creative plan. Um, I lived right by Walmart, and uh, a small town, and so I was going to sneak out and go buy a soda at Walmart. That was my mischievous plan. Um, so I was really excited about it, and a buddy of mine was over. We, had a, we were having a dude slumber party. Um, and uh, and so we we it's like dead of winter, so we get all of our snowsuits on and we climb out the window. Now, I uh, I lived a pretty straight and narrow life, so I was feeling like pretty hardcore in that moment. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm I'm that's right. I'm headed to Walmart to buy a soda at the machine at like two in the morning, right? So plan worked great. We get down there, soda machine works. We have enough change, all that. Uh, and, and we're, we're feeling pretty killer with the soda in our hand. You know, we're like walking up the street like, you know, and no one's awake. But um, so uh, we, we, get back, we get back to the house and um, uh, my friend, uh, his name was Ryan Lewis. I uh, hope he's listening to the podcast. Probably not. Um, but uh, he, uh, he trips over the windowsill on his way back in. And so... Um, so this, you know, and it makes a big loud commotion. 
Well, in my house now, we have literally a box fan in every room, so we wouldn't be able to hear it, okay? Literally, like every kid has like some massive, but when I was a kid, like we didn't have box fans in rooms, so they could hear it. So instantly you hear like the stomp of my big old dad, who's like 6'6", six, six, up in the, up in the, and you can hear that he's coming downstairs. Well, the best plan we can think is just to hop in my waterbed, wearing our snowsuits, and like pull the whole thing over our heads, you know what I'm saying? So I had a waterbed, it was awesome. Um, <laughs> So, so we walk in, and uh, we, we find ourselves in the bed. My dad walks in, he turns on the light, and, uh, and, you know, he can see our feet sticking out the bottom, and he can see, like, our stocking hats out the top, you know. And, I mean, I was, I was straight busted, you know. So he's, he's like, so what'd you guys do? And we're like, we went to Walmart and got a soda. He's like, seriously, that's incredibly lame. Like, you're not even, you know, like, what do you got? Couldn't think of something better than that, you know. But there's moments when you're a kid, listen, there's moments when you're a kid that you knew you were busted, you knew you were in trouble, and you avoided your parents at all costs. And the thought in your mind was this, like, I'm in trouble, I'm just going to avoid them, and maybe as time goes along, like, maybe, maybe they'll just forget about it. Maybe I won't get the punishment that I deserve. I fear with a very compassionate heart that some of you view God in that same light. That he's some parent who's caught you in the act. You're in deep trouble. So it's better just to keep God at a distance. You're worried that he's going to come and throw the gavel down. He's going to punish you. He's going to smite you. So because of that, I, I don't want to draw near to God. God, I'm in trouble, I've done wrong, you stay over there, I'll put you at a distance. The whole thing that the writer of Hebrews is saying is, you are in trouble, and that's why you need to go. That's why you need to draw near. You are desperate, you are in trouble, and that's the very reason why Christ has come as your priest, so you can draw near to God. He's not the God of smite, he's the God of grace. And yes, the God of judgment, my friends, but the opportunity for grace is still alive now. And some of you have been running, keeping God at a distance, thinking that he's just some fearful character that can't love you because of how disconnected you are and how deep your sin is. And let me tell you, that is a lie from the enemy. You're not too far away right now to be brought back by the grace of Christ. Receive it! Receive it now. Draw near to Him now. The period of grace is still there. And what I fear is what I see in Christianity overall in our culture is a whole bunch of people who have this unbelievable opportunity, listen, to be in close proximity with a good, glorious, amazing God. And yet they go like this. Do you understand what you're doing? You're taking the greatest gift that you could ever receive in love, the depth of grace, and you're saying no thanks. When here it is to wipe out every transgression, everything that you've ever done, it's right here. So I want to end with just asking you guys one more question. 
the psalmist, um, Psalm chapter 73, he uh, makes this statement. He says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. My question for you guys tonight is, is that your testimony? Is that you? And if not, will you please hear this? His grace is completely sufficient and enough. The things that you believe in your heart that are unforgivable are the very things that have been already nailed to the cross. And so this writer of Hebrews has passionately developed this concept of the priesthood and the understanding of Melchizedek so he can say, Jesus needs to be your priest. He's your way. He's your hope. Look nowhere else. Because of him, you can approach the great throne of God. And it's there. And only there that you'll find peace.